Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. On tonight's episode, we have the conclusion of Hunger Unbound. In part one, we met Asami Tanaka, a young woman with a terrible family secret. With the help of a powerful Oni, Asami has survived an attack on her family's temple, but only just. I hope you enjoy part two of this harrowing tale, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by a message from the Guild. The recent attacks throughout the Little Kingdom have been attributed to supernatural creatures known as Oni. The Guild can confirm that these attacks are, in fact, the work of malicious elements within the Miners and Steamfitters Union. Do not be fooled by superstition. Your true enemy is the Union, and your true friend is the Guild. Asami's eyes flickered open, and pain burst through her body once more in an agonizing crescendo. Her vision blurred, and she could taste blood and bile in her mouth. The back of her head felt swollen and stiff. Drink, girl. You need to drink. She felt something cold and wet trickle down her throat. It washed away the metallic taste lingering between her teeth in a purifying stream. She spluttered and coughed, wincing as the pain in her stomach doubled with each contraction. Asami, it's all right. You're safe. Several seconds passed, and finally her vision began to clear. She was lying on a tatami mat, wrapped snugly in her mother's quilt. Her other possessions started to materialize around her one by one until she finally recognized that she was back in her own room. And then she remembered. The blast. The stranger. The voice. The battle. Asami began to shudder uncontrollably as an unknown man pressed a cold rag to her forehead. Where is my father? Where is Yukio? She grabbed his wrist. She tried to sit up, but the pain was too great, and the man forced her back down. Who are you? Slow down, girl. Slow down, or else you'll hurt yourself, and all the work we did to keep you alive will have been for naught. He turned to pour her a cup of tea. My name is Kita. I was a friend of your father's. She was not deterred. My father. Where is his body? The man called Kita knelt down and held her hand tightly in his. I'm sorry, Asami. He fought bravely. So did you, and you saved the shrine. You would have made him proud. He lifted one of the sheets with a tender gesture, 
exposing the serene face of her father lurking below. The bullet hole glared up at her like a third angry red eye. He could not watch you forever. It's my turn now. Asami jumped. She had prayed that the voice would disappear, but even this seemed like too much to ask. Kita cast a shifty glance at her, as though he could sense that she was communicating with something that he could not see. You're lucky to be alive. That bastard really wanted you dead. He cut deep, and even my magic couldn't completely save you. You should have been gone by the time I got to you, but somehow you kept going. He stared into her eyes as though searching for something that she couldn't identify. The lights burst before her again, and she was forced to blink. He knows about me. The wounds at the back of your head and in your stomach will heal, Kita noted. They will hurt for a while, but no harm will come of them. Kita looked up nervously, beside himself with embarrassment, as if unsure what to say. Tell me, she said. She had already lost her father. What could possibly be worse? You can never have children. The cut was too devastating, and no magic is powerful enough to fix something so complex. Asami felt the blood drain from her face as she stared in shocked silence. She opened her mouth to say something, then closed it. Her family. Her dreams. She would be destined to this loneliness forever. Asami? Kita placed a gentle hand on her shoulder. Asami? I'm sorry. She had lost everything. Her mother, her father, and now even the hope of raising her own family. Her next words barely escaped her throat in between violent, shuddering sobs. There is nothing left for me here. Kita, where can I go now? For the first time since they spoke, Kita offered Asami a wide smile. Did your father ever tell you about a place called Malifaux? The lights burst before her eyes once more. Take me there and accept my blessing and I will fix you. Although several weeks had already passed since Asami's crossing, Promises barren sands and nocturnal emerald sky continued to haunt her with their savage beauty. That life could exist in such a craggy wasteland of scattered settlements, while her own future was so desperately barren, seemed like a sort of sick joke. And not a night went by when she did not reflect upon her own suffering. And the suffering had been immense. In the span of just a few hours, Kita had brought down her entire world. You must understand, Asami, he had told her the night he accompanied her into the ether, that you survived the attack on the Obsidian Gates because you are special, just like your mother was before she died. He spoke quickly, as though he'd rehearsed carefully what he was going to tell her. The lights you see and the voices you hear are signs that you were chosen by one from beyond. You are gifted with martial abilities, which are necessary for the cultural survival of our people, and you have an obligation to hone and train them he placed a gentle hand on her shoulder. That's what your father would have wanted. My father wanted me to have children and to maintain the family shrine. Not to be a fighter, she said angrily. What if I refuse? Her gifts had robbed her of any chance at a normal life. 
The freedom she'd experienced in tearing open Titus' throat seemed so fleeting now. I'm afraid you can't, was all Keita said. Then he blindfolded her and tossed her through the gateway into the new world. Thus did the entry into Malifaux mark a new beginning for Asami. The Ten Thunders offered her a sense of purpose which she never knew she was capable of possessing. Asami would not cry any more. Kita taught her that weeping was a sign of passivity and weakness, which could bring back neither her father nor her lost future. Still, the new environment confused her, and so she found little solace in her surroundings, especially since Kita's revelations about her family history and its allegiance to the Ten Thunders brought her further away from the father she thought she knew. Worse still, Kita kept insisting that her father wanted her to let the Oni in, but she continued to fight the voices and the lights. They were evil, she kept telling herself. The blood she had shed the night her father died, and the way she had savoured it, was undeniable proof. But Asami could feel herself changing each day she spent away from Kamakura. She saw the lights everywhere now, and the voice in her head never grew quiet. It even had a body now. One morning, Asami awoke to find a squat, impish creature with jovial, apish features and pointed, gnashing teeth staring at her from the other side of her bed. She could barely muffle her scream of incredulity and disgust so as not to wake the rest of the hidden temple. You look surprised to see me, Asami. The lights would still burst behind her eyes every time the imp opened its mouth. But why? You know exactly what I am. You have a body, she croaked untangling herself from the sheets to get a closer look. The little imp gnashed its teeth. I am the Amanjaku. I have always had a body, but the magic of your world is so abysmally poor that I can't manifest it there. Only here in Malifaux. What would Keita do if he knew that you existed? In the same way that only you can hear my voice and see my lights, only you can see my form. If I so choose. Anyway, Kita already knows I exist. That's why you are here. The Thunders seek to manipulate the blessings I have given you for themselves. It will not be a problem because I'll never let you in again, Asami replied coldly. She could still feel Titus' blood boil in her hands. She turned away from the Oni. Why won't you leave me in peace? Because we can help each other, the Imp responded. It's time to renegotiate. I feel like you will take me more seriously now that I'm a body instead of just a voice. Remember my offer. I will give you the ability to have the child you so desperately want if you open yourself up to me so that I may finish my crossing. Every morning thereafter, the Amanjaku would awaken Asami with the same proposal, and each time she refused to subordinate her own humanity until one chance encounter during one of Keita's routine security sweeps along the rail lines changed everything. The Nephilim descended from the sky in a storm of leathery wings and blue fur. The rail workers furthest from the barracks were the first to die. They barely had time to register the flock of lightning-fast beasts before the razor-sharp talons ensnared their flesh. Some managed to offer a few blows before they succumbed to the tide or escaped to safety, and steel limbs met swords, claws, and horns in a hiss of mangled metal, snapped tendons, and boiling blood. Asami could tell that although Kita and his Torakaji bodyguard were badly outnumbered, 
they were protected by their considerable martial prowess. Chain bowlers shattered the cartilage of pinned wings with a sickening crunch, and flying shuriken dows with unspeakable poison severed black-blooded arteries. Still, the swarm of incoming Nephilim was too great, and within the next few minutes of furious fighting, the caravan was overrun. With their foremen dead or dying, the rail workers threw aside their shovels and mallets and sprinted for cover in the surrounding cliffs. Few made it to safety before more Nephilim cornered them in between the craggy rocks. Will you do nothing now, girl? the Amanjaku asked as he watched the boisterous Nephilim gore a Torakaji through the eyeholes of his porcelain mask. He chuckled with relish as he saw another Thunder's brother ripped to shreds from the ankles by four of the smaller Nephilim, which looked no older than infants. No, said Asami. I remember what it felt like when you possessed me the night my father died. That monster was not me. So you would rather die than allow me to help you defend yourself and all these other people. Asami ducked out of sight as one of the winged Nephilim swooped over her. If I die, so be it. But at least I'll die free from you. And what about their lives, he asked with mock concern, gesturing at the rail workers. Are they not worth saving? Asami, we have to get out of here. Kita's call between the sounds of flapping wings spared her from answering. He flipped gracefully over several of the smaller creatures and speared them all with one elegant stroke of his polearm. His next strike decapitated another and sent its head flying into its neighbor, horns first with a sickening squelch. Not while you can protect the others, she answered, scrabbling for cover. I'm sorry, Asami, but I can't. These people are disposable. You're not. Yamajaku raised an eyebrow. The biting callousness of Kita's words stung. Well, the imp asked again. He won't save them. Only you can. And in that moment, Asami made her choice. She felt the Amunjaku's power wash over her for the second time, as her hair began to form thick, spidery ropes that floated above like hungering serpents in search of a fresh kill. She screamed as the old wound at the back of her head forced itself open, elongating and stretching the ruddy, cracked skin into a massive, sickening maw of concentric rings of carnivorous, gnashing teeth. Keita froze, uncertain as to whether the woman he strove to protect was human or something else entirely. Alerted by the sounds of her cries, the Nephilim looked up from their slaughter and paused only briefly before charging at this new threat. As though anticipating the fresh wave of blue horrors, Asami's slithering locks stretched hungrily towards the charging beasts. The tentacles searched the throng of blue bodies for the smallest targets, which they enwrapped and shoveled whole down the gaping mouth at the back of Asami's head. The Nephilim stopped in their tracks, horrified at the fate of their younger comrades. But what happened next was almost more obscene. With a sickening gurgle, fresh new bodies began to emerge from the maw at the back of Asami's head. In a perverse mockery of birth, these newly summoned monstrosities crawled out of nothingness itself, as Asami's maw remolded into impossible, unnatural dimensions to accommodate their arrival. As much to his own disgust as that of the enemy, Kita recognized the bird-like forms of Tengu, the simian visages of Yokai, and even the stone bodies of Obsidian Oni emerged from the inconceivable abyss at the back of Asami's head as a bestial menagerie of raw chaos. 
Asami's newly summoned Oni scattered the Nephilim horde and cut them down as they ran back into the cliffside caverns from whence they had come. In their wake they left a trail of black blood so thick that it turned the desert sand into a putrid slurry. With the battle over at last, Keita and his Tarakaji sheathed their weapons. Yet Oni continued to rage. Overcome with insatiable bloodlust, but left with no more Nephilim to target, the gibbering demons set themselves upon Keita and his guard. Keita barely had the opportunity to regret his own foolishness before the swipe of Anani's razor-sharp claw severed his head from his shoulders in one fell stroke. His mouth was still agape at the madness he thought he could tame as his skull met the ground. Within seconds, the remaining saffron-clad Tarakaji was similarly cut to crimson ribbons, leaving Asami alone with nothing but corpses. Surrounded by slain Nephilim and Torakaji alike, Asami and the Amanjaku knelt over Keita's headless body as the other Rani snapped and snarled at each other. Asami's eyes were still closed. Her beautiful locks drifted eerily, suspended once again by some force beyond the young woman's control. Writhing as though serpentine, the strands of Asami's hair braided themselves into razor-like tendrils that shoveled chunks of Keita's flesh into Asami's gaping maw. You shouldn't feel so glum. You saved a lot of people. Although you killed a few more, the Amanjaku cooed. This is exactly what you were born to be. Just like your mother, he chuckled. Asami said nothing, but she felt the tears pour down her cheeks. She couldn't control the burning feeling inside of her. The shame was too great. She reached for Keita's cold hand and clutched it tightly in her bloody fingers. You protected me, and I hurt you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, she sobbed, pressing her forehead to his ruined chest. She felt her tears congeal with his blood, but she didn't care. Keita's demise was her fault. All her fault. She had been too trusting to let the Jackie win again, and she had paid the price. And what would the Thunders do with her now? She was a loose cannon. They would surely kill her like a showbeast which had slain its handler, unless she killed herself first. Just like on the night when she first allowed the Amanjaku to enter her body, she would ensure that her death was her own. It would be no one else's to save her. Asami scrambled in the dust for Keita's pole arm. Ah, 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 the squat little Lani said mockingly. He wagged a worn finger at her with a flourish and the polearm levitated of its own accord out of her reach. You've come too far for that, girl. There was a crunching sound, and Asami realized the mouth on the back of her head was chewing bones. You're still hungry, aren't you? Her stomach lurched. The thought of Keita's flesh almost made her vomit. She shook her head, fighting back more tears. No, no, silly girl. Not for the meat. You've forgotten the other part of our deal, haven't you? Ah, yes, you've forgotten about the child. Your child. I did promise you one, after all. What child would take joy in being the offspring of a monster, she wailed. You are not a monster, Asami. You will learn to control your hunger, but you will need my help to control your blessing. That's how it works. Suddenly, Asami fell to her knees. 
Get out of my head. Get out. You don't own me. Her entire face contorted with a violent shriek, and a sudden shockwave pulsed through the air. As it reached the other Ani that had spilled from her moor, they crumbled to ash and drifted on the wind. After several tense seconds, there was only cool silence. Asami panted from exhaustion as the moor at the back of her head licked its lips and closed itself, and her hair fell back into place to conceal it. She was covered in blood and dust, but somehow she looked just like the pale, timid young woman whom she had once been. I can see that you're becoming more adroit at learning to use my gifts already, Amanjaku said, a hint of fear creeping into its voice. I don't need you anymore. I refuse to be anybody's pawn. Masami choked, looking around at the carnage she'd caused mere moments ago. As the rage built inside her, she took a furious swipe at the Oni, but frustratingly he danced beyond her reach with glee. So you're willing to sacrifice the child I offered to grant you? I thought we had a deal. What you want more than anything in the world in exchange for what I want more than anything in your world and mine combined. More than fair, was it not? There is always another way, spat Asami through gritted teeth. She tore at her own hair as though hoping to strangle any future life out of the now dormant tendrils. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Yao and Jacky laughed sourly. You think it's that easy, girl? You'd have to find something else that possesses the same kind of power I do. Do you think that these pitiful, primitive creatures, he made a disdainful gesture at the slain Nephilim, have the answers you seek? Only one other being from beyond can give you a child like I can. And Lingzuzi wouldn't want to talk to you. He has enough. The demon stopped himself abruptly. You say that like you know him, like he's already here in Malifaux. Asami paused to contemplate the expression of evident worry etched on the Amanjaku's impish visage. It seems as though I've said too much, he groaned. I misspoke. Forget it. Asami ignored this. If I find this Lingzuzi for myself, then what? You will have no leverage over me, no hold. You will be nothing, and I will be free. I can have my child without your curse. He may be another Oni, but at least the choice to deal with him is my own. I saved your life twice. I thought we had an agreement, the Amanjaku barked. Not any more. Your gifts have poisoned me enough. If there's another Ani more powerful than you in Malifaux, then I'm going to find him. Without your help. I can always lie about how Kita died. I will have the Thunders by my side so long as I continue to serve them. Her hands clenched into fists. Asami stared into the eyes of the monster facing her. She would not be a pawn or a plaything. Fate had taken her family from her, both those she had known and those she could never know. But it could not take her will, and she would make her own way. Jaku had granted her power at a cost, but it was a power she could control. She had seen how the Jaku had quivered after she banished the other Ani. Even so, Asami could not escape the creeping notion that her skin was no longer her own. I will find this thing, Susie. Asami said, and I will win what is mine without your help. As Asami turned her back, Amanjaku smiled.
That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.